Romans chapter 5, I will read verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured, out, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As a Christian, you might fall into the trap of thinking that the reason that God loves you is because Jesus died for your sins. It makes sense, after all. Jesus came and died. You're such a filthy sinner. And now, through Christ's death, God loves you. Children, that makes sense, doesn't it? But really what the scripture holds out for us in our text in particular is quite the reverse. It's not that God loves us because Jesus died for our sins, but rather Jesus died for our sins because God already loved us. And this is really a great comfort for the soul. What is the most famous Bible verse known even among the unbelievers? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice the order there. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. God's love is the cause and the giving of the Son. The death of Christ is the effect. God already loved. God already by his free will set his love upon his people and therefore sends his son, sent his son to reconcile them unto himself. And what this provides for us, what this teaches us, is that God's love is an everlasting love, a love that cannot change. In Jeremiah 31 verse 3 he says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness. And really the sense of that passage is this. God's love never ends because really it never began. You see, human love, by contrast, has a point in time in which it begins. Oftentimes, even, it's an almost involuntary reaction to something that we see good in another person. I saw that a, a young lady in this congregation just got engaged. Congratulations. Probably, I can imagine, that that young man saw her and there was something in her that just compelled her, him to her. That something that just moved. You've experienced this, probably. There's just such beauty. There's such... such handsomeness, such, such skill that just draws me. I almost can't help it. My affections are just drawn involuntarily towards this person. But not so with the love of God. God's love is entirely in accordance with his own will. 
He willingly sets his love, not by compulsion, not because there's something that he sees in us that's good, that compels, us to, uh, compels him to love us, but simply because by his good pleasure, he freely and sovereignly decided to love his elect. There's a song that asks a pretty valid question. Will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? Maybe not. Human love is oftentimes fleeting. We see how fickle marriages are these days. You no longer make me happy, I'm gone. I'm, I'm but because the love of God is not founded upon anything that's in us, not our beauty, not our righteousness, not our goodness, not, our, not even our foreseen faith, because God's love is merely founded upon himself, his own goodness, it cannot change. And it will never end. It's an everlasting love. And the ultimate demonstration of this everlasting love is the death of Jesus Christ. And that's the doctrine I want to insist upon us this morning. The death of Christ for sinners is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. And as we take up verses 6 through 11 this morning, uh, we'll see this borne out. First of all, we'll consider uh, the object of uh, divine love. God's love, that divine love demonstrated to sinners as we take up verses 6 through 8. And then in the following verses, uh, as we consider the means whereby this love is demonstrated, uh, divine love demonstrated by Christ's death. And then as we look finally at verse 11, we'll see that this divine love is demonstrated for our joy. But first of all, divine love demonstrated. Verse 6 says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's a noble thing to lay down your life for your family, for your wife, for your children, for your nation. And we applaud such heroes. And that makes sense. There's a natural relationship there that ought to be defended. We ought to lay down our lives for our children, uh, for our spouses, uh, for our nation if we're called upon. But who in their right mind would lay down their life for an enemy? For one that's wicked, one that has done them harm, one that spikes their name and spits on their face, one that would, if they could, kill you. And really, that is what sinful men do. They desire the death of God. Think about it. When you sin, you desire that the, the law of God, God would be cast off from his throne. You wish that there were no God so that you could do that which pleases you, what your flesh desires. You look at, uh, on, you look at God and his law. You look at his righteous regulations in the word. And when your flesh flares up, you wish that you could just do what you please. That God would leave you alone. There's a hatred towards God when we sin. That's why when Nathan the prophet confronted David, what did he say? He said, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And because you have despised me. David in his sin with Bathsheba despised, hated God. And that's really what all sin is. It's an act of hatred towards God. And we know that hatred is a species of murder. Every thought of hatred would break out into an act of murder if it could. That's why Jesus says, whosoever hates his brother is guilty of murder in the heart. And whosoever hates God by committing sin against God desires to murder God, really. Desires to put him to death. 
desires to cast him off from his throne. And, and these men such as this are the ones for whom Christ died. There's a comparison given. It's a rare thing that even for a righteous person, the best guy on earth, would someone be willing to lay down his life for them? Your neighbor might be the nicest person you've met, might lend you butter and eggs whenever you need them. But if it comes down to it, are you really going to lay down your life for them? Maybe. And so that really just goes to show the abundance and the depth of the love of God that shed, shed forth in the death of Jesus Christ for sinners. We were enemies of God. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, verse 8, Christ died for us we, while we were yet sinners. Not after we've prepared ourselves, not after we've cleaned ourselves up, done penance, offered sacrifices, tried to make ourselves worthy, and then God sent us, no, while we were yet sinners, in the muck and mire of rebellion and filth, Christ died for us. We have a tendency, really, to think too lightly of sin, really to appreciate the beauty and the boundlessness of the love of God in the gospel. We've got to take time to meditate on the ugliness, the heinousness of sin. The great and glorious God, the triune God who has all blessedness and happiness in and of himself, freely decided to create all things in heaven and earth, angels and men, the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air. And of all the creatures on earth, among the things that creep upon the land among the things that fly in the air. Only man that had the privilege of walking in the presence of God in the garden. Only man that was made in the image and likeness of God. Only man that was given dominion over all the creatures of the earth. Only man that rebelled against God. Oh, really think about Adam in his, in his upright condition and what his fall must have entailed. You see, Adam had a pure conscience, a conscience not hardened or, or, or deadened in sin in any way, shape, or form. You see, when we sin, our, our consciences are so hardened that we're desensitized towards sin. So oftentimes when we, we sin, we don't even realize what a heinous thing it is that we're doing. Adam, on the other hand, had this untainted conscience so that when he sinned, he immediately felt the weight of it. He immediately knew he, he didn't have all these false contracts in his mind uh, whereby he was deceiving himself as we do in the hardness of our heart. Oh, our sin isn't that big of a deal. Oh, God isn't going to punish us. Immediately, Adam felt the weight of his sin coming down upon his shoulders as a heavy burden, and that's why he wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. That God that once dwelt in his sweet communion with him oh, became a consuming fire to him now became the greatest danger that he wanted to flee, that he wanted nothing to do with that. I would even say he developed a moment where he fell into sin. And we all have inherited the guilt of Adam's transgression. Adam was uh, a federal, rep a covenantal representative of all mankind. And all of us have descended from him 
physically. And so God dealing with mankind, not merely, at, not merely at, dealing with Adam, not merely as an individual, but dealing with him, dealing with all of humanity as one corporate entity, all of us have inherited the guilt of Adam's transgression. And so we are condemned on that grounds. But not only that, we've also inherited the corruption of Adam's nature. So that from the moment that we are conceived in the womb, from the moment that we come forth in birth, yes, look at the little one. But you know, parents, that there's something in them. Something that causes them to be rebellious. Something that if they could, if they had the strength, they might even bludgeon you to death. That's the corruption of their nature inherited from Adam. And as we grow older, that corruption sees it, uh, sees grosser and, and, and more heinous manifestations sin. And especially, as we heard earlier, for us who have gospel light, us who are in the church, us who have been brought into uh, the visible covenant community of God, when we sin, our sins are especially heinous, for we're sinning not just against God, our Creator, but against Christ, our To sin as a Christian, to sin with knowledge of the gospel, is to treat the rock of our salvation lightly. To trample upon His blood, to spit upon His face, to know the cost that was paid for our sin, and yet continue in it willingly and repeatedly. To be as though you yourself are crucifying Christ and piercing his side. Friend, do you know that you indeed by nature are a... And you're not just a sinner because you happen to sin. But because, as we've said, your nature is in fact sinful, therefore you sin. You sin in thought, in word, and the moral moral law of God sets out uh, for us a perfect an inflexible standard of righteousness, which God holds every man, woman, and child to upon this earth. And there is no room for error at all. Have you really meditated upon the moral law of God and what it requires of you? What is the first commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Which of us has ever done that? Which of us can really say that our affections are totally, really, truly, wholly for Christ and for God the Father. And we have no competing affections at all. No, we can't say that. How much of our thoughts are, are, are consumed with worldly and idle things? How much easier is it to, to set our affection and to love our, our children, our spouses, than it is to love the God that made us and redeemed us by the blood of His Son? And you might hear that and say, well, everybody sins in that way. That's not that big of a It's not prostitution. It's not murder. I'm not doing meth on the street. The greatest commandment, the violation of the greatest commandment must by necessity be the greatest sin. And really all other sins follow from this violation of the first and greatest commandment. So long as we are not loving God in our hearts as we ought, we are violating the moral law of God. Not to mention all the other things all the other Ten Commandments, how we ought to worship Him only in the way that He has prescribed. And not only that, to worship Him in our affections, with grace in the heart, not merely outwardly and formally, to revere and to honor His holy name. 
how often have we really meditated upon the, what the fourth commandment requires of us to set apart a day for rest and worship, to reflect and to, to, to rejoice in the resurrected Savior. We might content ourselves that we're not going to work and we're not going out to eat at McDonald's or Denny's after worship. Isn't what the Lord's saying? Really, in the spiritual sense, no, of course not. All of God's commandments convict us of sin at all times according to the standard of the moral law. And while we were apart from Christ, these things determined our standing before God, standing as sinners, standing as criminals, standing as those to be condemned by the bar of divine justice. But while we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, while in our hearts we had a hatred towards God, while we were rebels, while we were those who would commit deicide, murder of God, to die for the ungodly. God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, the love of God is demonstrated to sinners, devoid of anything in them at all that would merit salvation. Devoid of anything at all that would merit God's love. Full only of that which warrants His justice, warrants His wrath and His abundant love, and His everlasting mercy, stayed the sword of His own justice, which ought to have been unsheathed and pierced us through in the heart. As we read in Zechariah, He pierced His own shepherd, his own, that we might be reconciled unto Him. And so as we consider this demonstration of the love of God, really think about who it is that is being loved. Enemies, rebels, Villains, he who at one time walked according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the children of disobedience, doing only those things which our flesh desired. Perhaps you or someone that you know came to Christ from out of the world, and, you, and they can recall, you can recall how heinous it, and how foul your life was before Christ. Everything you did was simply selfish. Really, this is true of all of us in the church or not. You simply serve self. You love self. If you could, you'd set up an altar unto self. And maybe you did on your Instagram with all of your selfies. Self was God. And yet, the love of God broke through and snatched up these sinful souls and redeemed us by the, love, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so let's consider the means whereby we're saved, whereby the love of God is demonstrated unto us, the, love, the divine love demonstrated by Christ's death. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for my sins. The almost become a trite saying in American society, you go out and share the gospel with someone on the street, they might be able to say, oh, I'm, I'm fine, Jesus died for my sins. Our children, praise God, can uh, recite these words, Jesus died for my sins. And we can even say these words with a cold heart, affections untouched and unstirred. But really think about it. Jesus died for my, who is Jesus? The beloved Son of God. He who was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God and took on him the form of a servant who humbled himself even unto the death of a cross. 
the glorious and beloved Son of God. He who, who all the heavens, all the angels in heaven worship and adore as their Lord. He who is the desire of the nations, the glorious Son of God. Equal in every respect with the Father, of the same substance, equal in power and glory with God the Father, came down from heaven, assumed to himself a human nature into the unity of his person, suffered and died for sinners. And not just died, but died an excruciating death, bearing up the burden of our sins upon his back. In the prophets and in Amos, for example, we read Christ speaking as though the sins of his people are a heavy burden. He's a, it's a, as though he's a cart that's pressed under the burden of his people's sins. Again, in Isaiah 43, we, we read something similar where Christ says that his people have wearied him with their sins. Christ came as a servant, and we have laid the burden of our sins upon his shoulder, oftentimes presumptuously. We've looked at, at, at Christ as the guy willing to pick up the bill for dinner and say, oh, I'll get everything, and I'll get some sides to go as well and some dessert. You're paying the bill, no problem. That's what we've done with our sins. Christ has come as a servant to bear the burden of our sins, and we've piled it on his back time and time again. More lies, more lust, more hatred in the heart, more contention and strife. And Christ in his humility and in his humanity bore up this burden, really being crushed under it, if not for the divine nature that he was united to in his per in, uh, as the God-man, the mediator, God and man in one person. Christ, really man, bore this burden and suffered. Suffered, first of all, the wrath of God against sin, the soul sufferings of Christ. Christ suffered body and soul for our sins. And so in extreme agony, he went to that cross as he felt the wrath of God against the sins of his people imputed unto him. And this burden was on his back. And he really, really, that, that prayer that he prayed before he went to the cross was in earnest. When he said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. You see, Jesus Christ, as a true man, under, understanding the weight and the fury of God's wrath, and being a perfect human ought not to have desired that wrath, to drink that cup. And so, of course, he would pray that that cup would be taken, if possible. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And so Christ came into this world and lived as a, a man of sorrows, acquainted, and bore our griefs. And our sufferings were laid upon him to bruise him, to crush him for our sin. He was mocked by even his own family. He was forsaken by his dear friends. Not just Judas that betrayed him, but even all the other 11 disciples, when push came to shove, they all scattered and fled. And Christ was left alone. I looked on my right hand, and there was none. On my, on my left, and there was none to care for my soul. And he bore this burden alone, really, as a demonstration of the love of God. We can, as Christians, as we reflect upon ourselves and our own sin, we see what ugliness and corruption is yet in us. We might think that the death of Christ, what's done for us as 
made it so that God now tolerates us. Really, he would lash out at, at us as a hungry bear and tear us down, but, if not, but Christ has come so that now we can be tolerated. And we can come to him with our prayers and our petitions, and, and, and if we pester him enough, he'll acquiesce to the things that we want, just like a, a mother might be bothered by the pestering of her children and finally give in. But, but no, that's not what it is at all. The, lo- the death of Christ is evidence of a fervent and unquenchable love of God towards us as sinners. So that God loves us far more than we're even capable of loving Him. So that even God desires our salvation more than we desire to be saved. So that Christ was more willing to go to the cross than we are to go to Him for forgiveness of sins. So that God desires us in heaven even more than we desire to go there. The Song of Solomon paints this picture of a husband with an unquenchable love. A love that can't be quenched. A love that burns, as it were, with the fire of God itself. An unquenchable love. Billows of the ocean and waves might come upon it, and yet that fire will burn and and absorb all the waters and still burn ever fervently, ever zealously. As Reformed Christians, we confess... We confess that God is without passions. God is unchanging. God isn't an emotional being that uh, has one state of mind today and another tomorrow. Amen. But we mustn't let that cause us to think that God's affection, God's love, disposition of love towards his people is anything but an ever-burning furnace of fire. The love that we have towards our spouses ebbs and flows. We're on fire. Maybe during good seasons, we can say that with, with such certainty that we love them so much, but we know that we're a changeable creature. But the love of God being infinite is set upon us as his people, as his elect, with an infinite intensity and, and zeal. It is an unquenchable love. It's an eternal love that is therefore everlasting. It cannot end. And it cannot be quenched. And the ultimate proof of that is in the death of Jesus Christ for us as and again. It's not that God loves us because of the death of Christ or God elects us because of the death of Christ, which is, by the way, error of the Lutherans. But rather... Because God loved us already with this burning, zealous, and unquenchable love, he sent forth Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And therefore, that ought to shape how we view our Christian life, how we view all religious activity, how we view the Bible itself. It's not merely a cold and rigid book of rules and regulations, but it's a demonstration of the love of God. It's a love letter, if you will. It is the holy God that is, who is love itself beckoning us to come and to be reconciled and to enjoy his presence, to taste and see that the Lord is good and to be filled with his goodness, filled with his love and have our souls satisfied. How many songs, how many movies, how many books are written about a so-called love. 
fantasizing about some man or woman, thinking that they can bring a satisfaction to the soul, thinking that if I just had this person, then I would be happy. Reality teaches us that that's not the case. Reality teaches us that whatever beauty we see in another person will fade. Even a marriage that is long and happy is ultimately vain, for it will come to an end in death, and it doesn't bring an ultimate satisfaction. But the love of God that showed forth in Jesus Christ, being everlasting, being unquenchable, is that which can satisfy the soul. And so as we hear of the gospel, even as we see the death of Christ signified and sealed to us in the sacrament, we ought to remember that these things, that the gospel is a demonstration of the love of God. And so, although it might be difficult to believe at times, Jesus loves me, God loves me. Looking at the scriptures, looking at what's been done, looking at the sacraments for the confirmation of our faith, we can be assured of the love of God that's demonstrated in the death. But also, as we look at verse 11, we see that divine love is demonstrated for our joy. It says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received. This demonstration of divine love in the death of Christ is, yes, we hear the reproaches of the world, how they think that we're all a bunch of dour and depressed Stone Age imbeciles following some foolish religion. But, but, but no. The gospel brings about joy and is intended to bring about our joy. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so through this work of the gospel, being reconciled unto God, God who is goodness and bounty and beauty and blessedness, happiness itself, now through the, this gospel, this work of reconciliation in Jesus Christ, we can now enjoy him. He who was, when we were in the state of nature, in the state of sin, a consuming fire unto us, is now the light of the, sh of the sun shining unto us and warming our hearts. You see, the damnation of the wicked consists in two things, really. Yes, of course, there's hell, the eternal punishment of their sins, but there's also the absence of that joyous presence of God. In His presence is fullness of joy. And we, as we receive salvation, we're not merely de delivered from hell. We are delivered from hell, and praise God from that. But mo mo more than that, we are now able to enjoy God, not, uh, not only in life to come, but even here and now. He's our portion and our inheritance in the land of the living. And so we, as Christians, we who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are able to have a, a deep and lasting joy, not a fleeting emotion. We know by experience that being a Christian doesn't mean that we don't have problems. We know that the right, many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord And in it all, we have a joy, a, a joy unquenchable. Really, the whole gospel ministry is aimed at joy. The Apostle Paul himself says that he's a minister for your joy. The prophet Isaiah describes his own ministry this way in Isaiah 62. 
he says, for Zion's sake, I will, not, I will keep preaching. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be the, a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hepzibah, Hepzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be as uh, be married. And here, verse 5, For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. In the gospel, we are espoused unto Christ as our husband, so that he himself, even God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoices over us and, as it were, sees us as the apple of his eye. And we can even take and apply unto Christ the, the words in Song of Solomon that, where he says of the bride, one look from your eye. You see, the relationship that we enter into through the reconciliation of the gospel is a relationship of joy and rejoicing. In Zephaniah 3, we hear that the, the Lord will sing over us and joy over us in joy. Our home in heaven, our reward in heaven is this everlasting dance of joy. God rejoicing in us and us rejoicing and beholding his glory. This is really why we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is why he says in Psalm 149, verse 4, I will beautify the meek with salvation. He has come and done this work. He's come and reconciled us unto him, clothed us in his beauty. Ezekiel 16 says, I put my beauty upon you so that we can have this everlasting fellowship with him, so that we can be conformed into his image. While, yes, indeed, he loved us while, he was, while we were yet sinners, he is righteous and will tolerate no sin in his sight. Therefore, he sent his son to purge us of our sins, that we might be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and enter into an everlasting fellowship with him, a fellowship of joy. This d demonstration of divine love is really, therefore, for our all of gospel preaching. The church itself, the sacraments, all the means of grace, therefore, have this aim for the glory of God and also for our enjoyment of God. And so, as we look unto Jesus Christ, even as we partake in the sacrament this morning, we ought to really think on this, that all these things are for our joy. And through the death of Christ, being reconciled unto God, God is not merely a consuming fire, but a well of everlasting joy. With joy will you draw from the wells of salvation, Isaiah chapter 12. And so, Christian, having seen this demonstration of God's love in the death of Christ, that which is demonstrated unto sinners, enemies of God, with nothing to merit God's love, demonstrated by the horrific death of Christ in which he suffered both in body and in soul in which he cried out upon that cross I thirst with a thirst which resulted not merely from eating a biscuit or two that was too dry no 
but because so much of his bodily fluid had, had, had gone out. And now being at a, at a point of death, suffered that thirst in body and soul, his body being broken, his blood being shed. All because he had a love for his. And knowing that all these things are for our joy. Will you not look unto this Savior, this loving Savior, he who was willing to lay down his life and to purchase by his own blood a people unto himself and to reconcile us unto God? And will you not indeed be persuaded that through this you can have joy? You might hear these things and say, oh, that's just Christianese. There's no real joy in the Christian life. There is. Believe it and receive it. The Word of God says it, so it must be true. And really, as you look and you think upon these things, that you have your soul purchased from and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that all those things that were unprofitable and disgusting in your sin, you've been redeemed from, that now through the blood of Jesus, you're reconciled unto God, you're adopted into the family of God, you have God for your Father, and you have heaven for your home. You ought really to have joy, even amidst affliction, joy even amidst sorrow. The Apostle Paul himself said that he was sorrowful yet always. Yes, you will be afflicted. Yes, you will suffer in this life, but you can have a lasting joy in Jesus Christ. And the sacrament which we're about to partake of is given to us to signify and to seal that unto us, to strengthen our faith. That as we remember that the body of Jesus Christ was, was broken as a demonstration of his love for his bride, and his blood was shed for the same purpose, as we partake, we look not merely to the elements of bread and wine, but we look heavenward, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Receive of the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ through the work of the that the love of God is toward sinners who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ is not merely something that mommy and daddy have to say to you during family worship, or that you hear from the pulpit at church. It's something real. It's something for your, your soul. As you grow up in this world, you're going to be tempted to go into the world, to taste of its goods and its pleasures. All those things are vain. If you really want joy, if you really want pleasure, it is Jesus. If you really want love, it's Jesus. So take hold of Jesus and you will partake in the sacrament. We're called upon in our larger catechism to think affectionately of the suffering. Think of Christ dying as one dying for his beloved bride, one with such an unquenchable love that persecution, nails in his hands, a crown of thorns upon his head could not quench his love. And so he was willing to come from heaven and to seek and to save a bride. Think affectionately upon Jesus Christ as the elements are, are passed around as you, and as you partake. See that this is all really... Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this marvelous demonstration of your love in the death of Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We pray, O oh God, that we would really receive this precious truth, and that it would warm our hearts and stir our affections, and that you, O oh God, would be glorified in us. We pray, O oh God, that we would really taste and see that you are good, even as we partake in the sacrament. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that every soul would be strengthened, that every soul would be drawn unto faith in, in Jesus Christ, even this very moment. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.